Let me talk a little bit about what we're doing. I mentioned the fact that we're on a journey to Mars, and the fact that we spent 30 years operating um, in the vicinity of our planet, what we call um, near Earth, low Earth orbit, and uh, we successfully operated there from the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo programs where we went to the moon and then spent uh, sent six crews to the moon where we had 12 human beings who actually walked on the moon. And then we came back and we started operating for 30 years with the space shuttle program. Successfully flew uh, uh, for a long period of time. Um, and now we have come to another era that we were talking about just now. We now rely, the United States now relies on industry, on American industry to take cargo to the International Space Station for us. So we have two American companies, Orbital ATK and, Bo and uh, SpaceX, that carry cargo on specific vehicles. Orbital has a vehicle called Cygnus, uh, and it's a cargo module that goes, it'll fly again in late August and take cargo to station. Uh, SpaceX has a, a vehicle called Dragon, and many of you know about, about uh, SpaceX. So Dragon has a flight that's scheduled to launch next week, the 18th, and will take cargo to station. Boeing, another American company, and SpaceX are now developing two vehicles that will carry our crews to replace our reliance on the Russian Soyuz to get our crews to orbit. And so we're looking for Boeing and SpaceX to fly their first demonstration flights uncrewed next year, and then in 2018, they'll actually fly a demonstration or a certification flight, and then we'll be using Boeing and SpaceX to get our crews uh, to orbit. So we'll have three different vehicles that we can use to get, to get crews to the International Space Station and to low Earth orbit. SpaceX's Dragon, Crew Dragon, Boeing CST-100 Starliner, and the Russian Soyuz. So that's the way we're going to do it. The journey to Mars uh, has began 40 years ago. Uh, NASA started launching robotic spacecraft to Mars, first orbiters, and then we eventually sent some landers. Some were successful, some were not. Uh, today we have two of the, of the rovers that are still operating uh, on the surface of Mars. Um, one of them is called Opportunity. Opportunity's been there for a little bit more than 10 years. Curiosity was a giant rover, and I say giant, about uh, a, a metric ton and uh, about the size of a Mini Cooper, a little bit bigger than a Mini Cooper. And uh, Curiosity's been operating on the surface of Mars for a little bit more than three years now. And it moves around and it gathers samples and then it tests them right there. So it, we don't have a way to get stuff back from Mars yet. So one of the reasons we want to send humans is because we'll then have an opportunity for humans to interact with what's there on the planet, and we'll learn a lot more about it. So we began more than 40 years ago on our journey to Mars, and we're almost ready to send humans. But before we do that, we've got a few more robotic missions we're going to send there. Some will be orbiters, some will be, will be rovers. And we've we're got a 10-year period of time, the decade, I call it the decade of the 20s, when we're going to be in what we call the proving ground, where we're going to demonstrate, finally, the technologies that we know uh, are going to be needed to take an eight-month journey to get to Mars. That's how long it takes today, using chemical propulsion. Now, one of these days, one of you in the audience is going to become a propulsion engineer, and you're going to help us to develop a rocket that is going to allow us to go to Mars in, say, four months, maybe two months. And that will really change things, because the time that we're traveling, the crews are exposed to a little bit worse radiation than they experience right here on Earth. So that's, that's critically important for us. The very first flight we fly in November of 2018 is going to be called Exploration Mission 1. And then the next time we fly SLS and Orion will be called Exploration Mission 2, and those will be the first demonstration flights for 
uh, our exploration program and sending humans once again far away from Earth, out of low Earth orbit, uh, initially to the lunar uh, vicinity, and then in, in the 2030s on to Mars. Now, who wants, to, uh, who wants to go to Mars with me? What's your name? Serena. Serena, you want to go to Mars? You think you can handle that? Was that exciting enough? How about who else is up here? You want to go to Mars? That is what, what you saw is sort of a, a real quick look at how we're preparing to go there. Some of it was, you know, video that we made with computers, but a lot of it was actual flights that have already occurred. For example, when you saw the crew module with all the fire and everything, that was actually a flight of Orion uh, back in December of 2014. We sent it the first time that we had sent a vehicle intended to carry humans beyond low Earth orbit uh, in more than 40 years. And it went into two giant elliptical orbits around Earth, higher than we'd been before, uh, almost up to 4,000 kilometers, and uh, then came back and successfully landed. You saw us testing the engines that are going to be used in the SLS, uh, heavy lift launch vehicle. And then you saw kind of laying down a big rocket that went boom. <laughs> Those are the solid rocket boosters. There are two of them that attach to the side of the, of the SLS and actually lift us away from the launch pad and fire for the first two minutes just to get us out of Earth's atmosphere. So you, you got a pretty good opportunity to see some of the stuff that's happening. I forgot to tell you, there are two rules before we start. Okay, two rules. There's always rules. What's your name? Got to keep you awake there, Chuck. You're not sleeping. Chuck's not. Rule number one, you can ask questions anytime you want, Okay. Rule number two, there are no dumb questions. Any question you ask is fair because if you have it in your mind, there is probably at least one other person here who has the same question in their mind. So now what's your name? Martha. You didn't think I was going to come all the way up here and not pick on you, did you? Martha? Yes. Is that right? That's yes. a beautiful name. How about you? What's your name? What? Sam. All right. Are you a basketball player? No, you're tall. Okay, you got your iPad? All right, don't use it. It's bad. You can use it after we finish, all right? So questions anytime you want. There are no dumb questions. And I think we've got some mics. If we don't, I'll Okay, we have two people in blue. So raise your hand. They'll let you ask your question. I've got some more slides to show you. But if you have questions, that's what's most important about today. I want to get your questions answered um, so we don't have to see any more slides. This is, um, I love this, this is a mission called Discover. And remember when we were talking, we said NASA does lots of things. We have four big mission areas. The one we've already talked extensively about is called Human Exploration Operations Mission Directorate. That's where we think about sending humans into space. That's a large directorate with a lot of money. We have another large directorate with a lot of money called the Science Mission Directorate. And that directorate has four smaller pieces, divisions as we call them. One looks at the Earth in Earth science. One looks at the planets, not just around Earth anymore, but planets around other suns, other stars in our universe. That's called heliophysics. We have another one that, I'm sorry, we, that's the one that, that's called planetary science. Then when we look at all these suns, particularly our own sun, that's the field of heliophysics. And that's looking at the sun why, are we care? Why do we care? Well, because the sun is very, very active, and, uh, and it burps a lot. And when it burps, it sends out bursts of energy. And they, they're charged particles. They're all other kinds of stuff. For those of you who have, like Sam has his iPad, 
uh, on a really bad day. We've not had any really bad days from the sun yet. But on a really bad day, if, if one of those bursts of energy comes toward Earth and it poof, hits a communication satellite, Sam might lose the ability to look at his Internet because it would interrupt the ability of the satellite to work. And so that's why we need to know how our sun's performing and need to understand a little bit more about how, you know, what makes it function and why, why does it do what it does. Another area is called astrophysics. Astrophysics looks at two big questions. How in the world did all this stuff get here? All of us, planets, suns, everything. How did the, how did the world form? And then the most important question that astrophysics asks, what do you think it is? Huh? Question number two. Dun, 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 Anybody know question number two? Why are we here? That's close. Oh, you said it? Why are we here? That's kind of close, but what else might it be? Yes. That's how did this stuff all happen. That's question number one. But what else? What else would a human being ask? What would we be curious about? Where's it going? going? That's part of this, how did all this stuff happen? Ah! Are we alone? That's the second question from astrophysics. And so... Every day that NASA does its work, in every field, to be quite honest, we have a field called aeronautics that we look at airplanes and things inside our atmosphere, but that's also the, the, the field that allows us to escape the atmosphere. So aeronautics goes from zero on the ground with up and down all the way out to what we call hypersonic speeds, which is what rockets do when they escape Earth's gravity and get out into going around Earth and then going on to other planets. So... All of that is for the purpose of answering the second question, are we alone? Curiosity. Every single day, curiosity is moving somewhere new over the surface of Mars. It's taking pictures, it's getting samples, and it's putting them in a little chemistry set uh, up on its top, and it's analyzing the samples, looking for some sign of life. And when we talk about signs of life, we're not talking about some. What's your name? We're not talking about somebody like Heron. We don't expect that. But heron is made up of molecules and atoms and microbes. We'd love to find a single microbe in the soil or the ice or something else on Mars because that says we are not alone. There is other life in this universe, and that changes the whole ballgame. So we're really curious to find out whether there's other life. So that's, that's one of the things we're doing. Discover is a satellite that's a million and a half Uh, kilometers away from Earth, and it's looking back at us from that vantage point, and it looks at Earth all day, every day, and anybody know what that funny-looking thing is that keeps going through the screen? Who wants to? What? The moon. moon. So that tells you that this is time-lapse. How often does it go through the screen in real time? Huh? No, not 24 hours. What's your name? Sammy. Sammy said a year. Somebody said 24 hours. One month. That's how long it takes the moon to go completely around Earth. And so every time you see it come back, one month on Earth has elapsed. So if you look for 12 rotations, you've watched one year 
uh, on our earth. So that's what I say when I say it's time lapse. What else is unique about this image of the moon? What do we know about the moon up there? It's the back of the moon. Ah! Say it loudly. It's the back of the moon. It's the back of the moon. Has anybody ever seen the back of the moon before? Other than the, the, you know, the Apollo astronauts who went around the moon? This is the first time that you and I are able to see the back of the moon. The moon doesn't rotate. It doesn't have an axis on which it rotates like our Earth. So the moon, we see the same side all the time. So for the first time, we're able to look periodically through uh, a camera called Epic on the Discover satellite at the back of the moon. So that's, uh, I'm excited about that. Mars. What are we looking for? Scientists say, follow the what? Water. Follow the water. If we follow the water, what are we probably, likely, hopefully going to find? Life forms. Exactly right. Because water has oxygen and hydrogen and maybe nutrients and stuff. But, you know, if we find water, there is a possibility we'll find some form of life. Microbes, as I mentioned. And this is actually from the Mars... Uh, orbiting observatory. It, it's called MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's orbiting the planet Mars, and it's taking images all the time. And this year, last summer, for the first time, we actually saw images that said, boy, that's, that's water that's moving on the surface. It's icy, and it's really briny, which means it's got lots of salt in it. But for scientists, that was really, really, really exciting. Because we have scientists who go down into the Antarctic they go under the ice, and they bring out samples of ice, and they put them under, on a slide under a telescope, and they see little microbes, little life, little life forms that are moving around. They go into the mouth of a volcano, and they go down right above the lava, and they take samples, and they put it under a microscope, and they look, and they see little microbes. And so scientists say, man, if there's ice actually flowing on Mars, why would it be different than the ice that we see in Antarctica? or the, the lava that we see in a volcano. So really, hopefully, we'll find that there may be life in some of the waters flowing on Mars. This is uh, another planet in our solar system. Where's, where's Pluto? What's unique about Pluto? It's my go. It's not a planet. It's not a planet. Uh, come on. You're right. It's a dwarf. But it's an incredible dwarf, we found out. This was the... the, the this came from a, a mission called New Horizons that just stunned the world uh, last July. So we're about to come up on the first anniversary of New Horizons, and everybody fell in love with the heart. Can you see the heart? See where the, the white part is? It kind of looks like the left side of a heart or the right side of a heart, depending on how you're looking at it. But we found that unlike we thought, we thought Pluto was this cold, icy, rocky Thing, not even a planet. And we found, no, Pluto has an atmosphere, it's got ice, it's got huge mountains that are larger than any mountains here on Earth. And so Pluto took on a new, a new life for us. Juno is a mission that is, um, we used to say it's on its way to Jupiter. Well, guess what? On the 4th of July, I know this is not a good day for you all, 
but on the 4th of July, July, Independence Day for us in the U.S., um, Juno slowed itself down enough that Jupiter's gravity went, got it, and it went into orbit around Jupiter. So Juno is now orbiting the planet Jupiter. Uh, It's a very hostile environment. Jupiter has lots of radiation and everything, so we had to button Juno up. You know, to, we had to shield all of its cameras, shield all of its electronics and everything so that it could safely get into orbit around Ju- in, Ju- in Jupiter's uh, orbit. And now we're un- unbuttoning it and letting the cameras come into operation. So in a few weeks, you're going to start seeing images come down from, from, Jun- from Jupiter, uh, images that we hope will just mesmerize all of us. So that was Juno's voyage. took five years. So Juno actually launched in 2011 and took it five years to get to Jupiter. It's unique in that it's the first time ever that we have sent a solar-powered satellite to an outer planet. So it doesn't have nuclear power. It's using solar power. The big solar cells are what's giving it its power. This is a a satellite I mentioned to you a little bit earlier. This is OSIRIS-REx. It's pretty big. It's going to launch in September. And it's going to an asteroid called Bennu, and it will land on Bennu and then bring samples back uh, to Earth. It'll get back here in about 2023. So we'll actually get samples, and this will not be dust particles. These will be samples, uh, rocks, or whatever else comes off off Bennu. Uh, This is the James Webb Space Telescope. It is the successor, if you will, to Hubble, Um, a massive telescope, and... Uh, if you look, let me see, is that the right one or do I go one more time? One more. All right. This is sort of a time-lapse, photogra- uh, time-lapse photography of us assembling James Webb. Look at the size of the people. These are normal people, and it will give you a feel for how large the James Webb Space Telescope is. Each of those segments that you see is a mirror, a mirror segment on James Webb. It's all folded up for launch. And it's all tucked neatly away inside the nose cone of a rocket that's going to launch from a, a launch site called Kerou down in, uh, in French Guiana in South America. And this will launch in, in uh, 2018, and we will begin to get images of our universe that will dwarf what we saw from the Hubble Space Telescope. So we're really excited about, about that. Um, today we operate, as I said, in what we call an Earth-reliant environment. Uh, it's the International Space Station. This is where Tim Peake was. Uh, so Tim, this was Tim's home for six months. And hopefully uh, many of you saw Tim. This is the crew that was on before him, Scott Kelly there. And this was the first time that astronauts had an opportunity to eat food that they grew. So up until now, we had to send food up to the astronauts. Now, we're not growing everything. This was lettuce. But it turned out the astronauts said it was pretty tasty, uh, has sort of a sweet taste to it. But um, we now are getting ready to start growing some cherry tomatoes and then maybe some beans. And so how many of you saw the movie The Martian? We're not getting to potatoes just yet, but uh, one of these days we may get to potatoes, okay? But, uh, but we're actually growing food, our own supplies on the International Space Station. Uh, who's the guy on the right? Huh? Yes, Tim Peake. Where's Tim Peake from? 
the UK. You all are mighty quiet. I mean, you know, I'd be yelling it out. How many of you want to be Tim Peake? Well, you probably don't want to be Tim Peake because Tim Peake is Tim Peake. But how many of you would like to follow Tim Peake? I saw one person over there. But, but there have been other, other Brits who have gone to space, but most of them have come to the United States, kind of lived there for a while, become dual citizens, U.S. and British. Tim is a British citizen who came, flew on the International Space Station representing you. And he did an incredible job. And so he's out at Farnborough today, I think, or tomorrow or something like that. But that's Tim Peake and Tim Copra and Jeff Williams. Uh, Tim's now back home. Uh, Jeff Williams is remaining as the commander of the International Space Station. What do we do when we're in space? Well, we do lots of experiments. And frequently, we are the subject of the experiments. And in this one, this was my last flight. Remember, I mentioned the fact that this was the first time that we flew in a, Rus a Russian and American cos uh, astronauts together. And it was sort of the precursor for what is now the International Space Station. In this particular case, we were doing medical experiments where Franklin Chang Diaz, who has his back to you, he and I were both guinea pigs, alternatively. One day, I drew samples of blood from him. The next day, he drew samples of blood from me. So we were doing a blood experiment. And that's what a lot of the work that's done on the International Space Station is medical experiments. We now have an American scientist uh, and astronaut, uh, Dr. Kate Rubens, who just got to the station last week, week before last. And Kate will do something that's never been done before. She's a, she is actually a, a biologist uh, and doctor, and Kate is actually going to do some DNA sequencing on board the International Space Station. Has never been done before. Um, this was our, the two crew members that, that flew our, what we call the one-year study, an American astronaut, Scott Kelly on the left, a, a, a Russian cosmonaut, um, uh, Mikhail Kornienko on the right. They flew one whole year in space together, and we got lots of data from them. Scott was also, he is an identical twin to Mark Kelly, who was also an astronaut, and Mark and Scott participated in something that's called the, the twin study while they were there. It was a genomic study actually looking at changes in their DNA makeup and, and other things, trying to figure out if there's any effect, long-term effect on, on human DNA as a result of being in space. I mentioned to you that we're going to commercial means to get crews to orbit. On the left is the Boeing CST-100. Uh, we'll fly the first time next year uncrewed, and then in 2018 fly a crewed mission. SpaceX Dragon, Crew Dragon on the right, will fly uncrewed next year, and then uh, um, 2018 will fly a crewed mission. So that, those will be the two vehicles that we use to get humans uh, to orbit. Now, in 2010, President Obama uh, kind of set NASA off on this journey to Mars. He, he firmed it up. We had been working for more than, for almost 40 years trying to do this, but finally President Obama said this. And, uh, and it said, we're on our way to Mars, and that NASA is going to put astronauts there. We and our international partners in 2030, and our intent is to have more missions that follow and even go maybe, hopefully, farther into our solar system. So this is sort of, uh, we like to say, the evolution of a Martian. The two vehicles that are going to get us there, on the right, SLS, the Space Launch System, Heavy Lift Launch Vehicle. On the left, Orion, the Crew Module. The European Space Agency is responsible for developing what is called the service module. If you look where the solar arrays are sticking out, that piece uh, that's right behind the cone, uh, that's the service module. That's actually being done by the European Space Agency. So, so the UK, France, Germany, and other member nations in the European Space Agency. 
This is Orion. Actually, on the left is the flight article that's currently under construction at the Kennedy Space Center. On your right is Orion, the, the flight demonstrator, coming back after its, its original flight in December of 2014. And then just a series of, of uh, images here. You saw this in the video. So we've got main engine tests that are going on. This is the solid, one of the solid rocket boosters doing a ground test out in Provo, Utah. So I show you this because these are not drawing. These are not drawings. This is not something on a drawing board. We're actually building hardware and testing hardware. So we're on the way. Um, remember earlier we said something about if you're, a, if you're like science, math, engineering, we need you in NASA. And I said, well, I need you no matter what you do. And this is why. Our Earth is an incredible place, as I mentioned before. We need to be able to capture its beauty. So for that, we need people like the young man here has a camera. Somebody else probably has a camera. Some of you think you don't like math and science, but you love art, or you love to write, or you love to express yourself, or you're a, you're a maker, what we call a maker. You like to design things. The spacesuit. We have an old spacesuit. Really old spacesuit. Today, we use space shuttle suits to go out and do spacewalks, EVAs. That's a launch and entry suit that was developed after we had the Challenger accident. We need new, modern spacesuits. So for some of you, who wants to be a fashion designer? Anybody in here? No fashion? Yeah, okay, I've got a few. We need you, not just for fashion, but also to develop suits that can protect the human being. So you'll have to get together. Are you a scientist? No. no? You're not oriented towards science? Oh, no? She, she does what? I'm not good at it. You're not good at it? You don't know yet. You'll be good. Are you a fashion person? No. You like, what do you like? What? What do you like? Boys? <laughs> no? Okay, no boys? I like math. You like math. Great. You do the calculations. She does the spacesuit. Who's the scientist? You're the scientist. She does the help with the design of the spacesuit. So we got a team right over here. And that's what I mean. When we talk about, sci talk about um, NASA today, we're looking for people who are interested in science, engineering, math, technology, art, and design. We need all of that if we're going to successfully get to Mars. It takes everybody. Some of you, you want to be people who do numbers. So you're an accountant. Well, guess what? If I don't have an accountant, I don't get paid. So to me, they are really, really, really important members of the Mars team going to Mars. So we need accountants. We need lawyers. Lawyers keep us out of trouble sometimes. We need communicators like Stephanie sta sitting right down here on the front row. Stand up for a second, Stephanie. Stephanie is my press secretary. So when you read articles, if you see something tomorrow and it's bad, uh, it's because I did something bad. If it's good, it's because Stephanie took what I did bad and made it look okay. So that's what communicators do. She, she tries to help me. She builds things like this slide presentation. That's what communicate. You don't think I know how to do this, do you? Uh, you know, I'm sort of a pilot and sort of an engineer and sort of a scientist. Okay, questions. You all have been very, very lax in your questions. And remember, I said, we'll get something out of this if you have questions. So I really want to try to ask, answer some of your questions before I let you go. Yes? How do you coordinate? Oh, thanks. 
How do you coordinate all these different people? Oh, how do we coordinate all the different people in NASA and our international partners? For the international partners, we have an organization uh, that comes together frequently that's called a, a AL, it's called the International Exploration Coordination Group. Did I get it right? International Space Exploration Coordination Group? Okay. That's all of our partners that work on the International Space Station plus nations that are not a part of the space station but want to be members of the family of spacefaring nations. So we have periodic meetings and we talk about how are we going to get humans to Mars. Inside NASA, as the administrator, my job is to try to set the, you know, I say, okay, here's the path that we're going to take. And then I step aside and let really smart people like Stephanie and Al and the technical people put a plan in place and then, and then execute it. So all that testing that you saw going on, all these images that you saw about places we're going, all the satellites that I tried to show you, those come from really smart people who follow the direction that I've set for them and then they go do it. So that's kind of the way we coordinate. But we're talking all the time, really communicating. Always asking people to speak up if they don't agree or asking people whatever, they, I, I ask people all the time, if you do not agree with what I say, please let me know. Because I, I represent you, and I want to be speaking for you appropriately. So as members of the UK, as citizens of the UK, I actually represent you when I go out and I talk about the International Space Station and the collaboration. So if you hear us talk about something that doesn't make sense to you, you know, find a way to get it to us, either through the museum or somewhere that says, that doesn't make sense. Why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? Because we need for you. You all are the ones that are going to execute this. You're the ones that are going to go to Mars, not me. You know, my, my time has passed in, in terms of going to Mars. If you bring me back as an old man, I'll go. You know, but you all are going to be the ones actually executing all this. Question right here. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, what will the cities look like? What will, what will we like? It's going to be quite a while, in my opinion, before you have a city on Mars. The first, the first few decades on Mars are going to be like when Americans left here and went to the New World and started forming little towns on the east coast of the United States. You know, they were outposts and settlements. And uh, we're now a little bit more than 200 years old, and we're still figuring out how this thing should work. And that's going to be the way it's going to be for people on Mars. Some people, will, if you talk to people like Elon Musk, there are some people who believe that we'll go to Mars and we'll actually start building cities and the like. Initially, what NASA wants to do is get us there so that we can begin to do exploration and understand a lot more about our own planet by understanding what has happened to Mars. Mars used to be like Earth, we believe. Scientists, planetary scientists, really believe that Mars was once like Earth, fertile, green, uh, temperate climate, uh, not anymore. You know, something happened to Mars over its millions of years of lifetime. So that's what, that's what we at NASA and our partners are interested in doing. But you're going to have to be the one. Remember I said we need designers, like city planners and all that? You'll have to do that, but that's probably decades away. Okay? Question back there. Yes. Oops. Can you, can you say it a little louder unless we have a, we have a mic that she can get? He... Oh, what happens if you can't get back from Mars? Our intention is to make sure that that does not happen, that we don't get anyone stranded on Mars. 
And remember I told you we're going to spend 10 years uh, orbiting the moon and doing a lot of, it's actually more development and test than it is anything else. Doing experiments, making sure that the technologies that we've developed, the propulsion systems and everything, uh, are very reliable and dependable so that we don't get someone stranded on Mars. Um, there is always a chance that something will happen. And so remember I told you I want one of you to design a propulsion system that gets us to Mars in, say, two months instead of eight months. If you get stranded on Mars right now, you've got to hang in there for eight months until we can get some help to you. Uh, if I could get somebody to you in two months, I feel a little bit better. I still don't want to get you stranded on Mars. But, but we're constantly trying to develop and evolve systems that, that help us. Right there. Um, have you ever done a space flight? Have I ever done a space space like? Have um, I ever done a spacewalk? Spacewalk. Yeah, unfortunately not. I'm a pilot, and back in the old days, and I can say that, but back in the days of the space shuttle, uh, pilots didn't do spacewalks. We weren't allowed. We weren't allowed to get close to a spacesuit, because there were only two pilots on the shuttle, and our job was to fly it to space and back. And so, d doing spacewalks is risky. They didn't want to put it. At, put the vehicle and the crew at risk by losing one of the pilots. And so we weren't allowed to do those fun things like doing spacewalks. So I have never been in a spacesuit, meaning a, you know, a, like a spacewalk outfit, what we call an environmental mobility unit. All I wore was the, the orange suit that's the launch and entry suit that you wear going to space and coming back. Right here. Is it due, oh. um, is it due to its lack of gravity and therefore lack of atmosphere that we've decided to like skip inhabiting the moon or uh, because otherwise it's a lot easier like only three days away well good question and one of the reasons that we nasa has decided and we're not skipping the moon we're actually going to be there for a year uh i just finished having a meeting with one of our international partners this morning and what we're talking about is okay we're getting to the point now that we need to decide who which country or which partner is going to develop the lander to take humans down to the surface of the moon. Because, you know, my hope is that we actually will have humans go back to the surface of the moon while we're still making sure that we've got the proper technologies to send humans onto Mars. So it's, it's um, we're going to go, I think humans will go back to the surface of the moon. It's just, as you said in your, the last part of your statement, for most of the, the people in, in NASA and some of our partner agencies, Mars is really, really challenging. Technologically, we know what we need to know to get to the moon. We don't know what we need to know to get to Mars. And so we're taking on the really tough challenges. We're actually trying to encourage commercial entities, uh, companies like Google. You know, Google has the Google Lunar X Prize, where they're going to pay somebody millions of dollars to be the first civilian that sends a spacecraft to the moon, lands it in a specific area, and then there's another prize if they can bring it back to Earth. So we feel confident that, that companies and entrepreneurs and others can now get us to the moon. And NASA's trying to lead the teams that are trying to go to places that we don't know how to go, like Mars. Okay. Other, yes, go right there. Thank you very much, uh, Charles. That's really um, interesting. I want to uh, ask a quick question whether or not NASA had any plans of leaving the Milky Way. I read about a... Um, idea called the Lifeboat Foundation, which is the idea of building a space shuttle that could essentially support its own astronauts and go beyond. Yeah. It, are there any plans? NASA's not working right now actively on a mission that goes outside our solar system. 
we actually have two spacecraft, one that has actually left the solar system, Voyager, that is now in interstellar space. Uh, we have another one, which is uh, New Horizons. New Horizons, as it went past Pluto, is now in an area that we call the Kuiper Belt. So it's sort of the outer regions of our solar system. It's where there are lots of asteroids, and it's sort of the rocky beginnings of our solar system. And so we're, we're trying to determine what some target destinations are for New Horizons out in the Kuiper Belt. And then after that, who knows? Uh, you know, New Horizons might join Voyager in leaving the solar system. Voyager still sends data back to us, so we, we know the type of environment it's going through, but we don't have any active programs right now to send humans outside the solar system. We're just trying to get to Mars, and that's hard. That's really, really hard. Maybe a few more questions. I think we've got three minutes or something like that. Yes? What will happen if life is found? Ah, what happens if we find life on Mars? I don't know. That's the question. If we find life on Mars, uh, you know, that's a game changer because it says we are not the only living species in the universe as we once thought. It means that, okay, if there are microbes on Mars, does that mean that there is another intelligent species that's in one of these other solar systems? Because what we're finding now, how many of you are familiar with the term exoplanet? We're, we're locating with, with instruments like Hubble and mainly the um, Kepler sat, um, telescope. We're finding what we call exoplanets. We're actually looking at planets orbiting other suns, and we're looking for those planets that are in what we call the Goldilocks zone. How many of you remember the fairy tale? You know Goldilocks? What, what, what was the story about the three bears and the porridge? One was, one was not too... Uh, okay, too cold. One was too cold. One was too hot. The other one was just right for baby bear, right? So we're baby bear. And we're looking for planets that are not too hot. They're not too close to their sun. They're not too cold. They're not like Pluto, way away from the sun, where the temperature is just too extreme for life to exist, we think. But we're not sure. We are looking for something that's just right. So Earth is in what we call the habitable zone, and we call it the Goldilocks zone. That's what we're looking for with planets around other stars. Okay. Do you think sometime in the future they might be able to go on other planets' moons? Uh, yes. The question was, do I think that sometime in the future we're going to be able to land, go, when you say go, I mean, you mean land, on other planets' moons? I think before you know it, and, and because we, haven't, we have not finished defining exactly what our first few missions to Mars are going to be, it may very well be that some of you are going to be in charge when we get ready to go to Mars. It's only 14 years away, but some of you are old enough now that you'll actually be scientists, engineers, maybe astronauts when we go. We may decide that it's better to go to Phobos or Deimos, which is one of the, the, the two moons of, of uh, Mars that we know the most about, because they have very low gravity. And it's, so we could say, let's land on Phobos or Deimos, because it won't take a lot of power to get off. So we can go there, come back, or we can orbit Mars. We don't, we don't really know, before we actually decide we're going to land humans on Mars itself. There's another big moon called Europa, a moon of Jupiter. NASA is now in the process of defining a mission that will go sometime in the 2020s. It'll be a robotic mission, 
but it's going to fly to Jupiter and actually study its, its big moon, Europa. Why are we interested in Europa? The water. Europa is a water moon. It's, it's completely covered in an ocean that has an ice crust. And we believe, a lot of scientists believe, that, boy, with that much water, there is very good chance that there may be life in the ocean of Europa. So two more questions. Right over there. Yes. OK, somebody has a mic. Talk. Yeah. Go ahead. OK. What kind of process is the guy through to train for becoming an astronaut? What kind of price? Pro processes. Oh, processes. For someone to become and train to be a NASA astronaut, you have to do a few things. Like, we just finished a big selection process. So for an American citizen, they go on the web, and they go to something called usajobs.gov. That's how simple it is. Now, it sounds simple. It's pretty complicated when you get there. And you go to NASA astronaut, and you say, I want to apply to be a NASA astronaut. And, and literally, you fill out a form on the web, and you submit it to NASA. We got 18,300 applicants in February. In the month of February, we got 18,300 applicants in the three or so weeks that the applications were open. And so now we're going through all those 18,300 applicants. I've been told we've now whittled it down to, oh, a mere 12,000. So we're trying to get down. If we look at what the class of 2017 was like, uh, there were eight selected out of 6,800. OK, I wish I, I'm going to, I have run out of time, so I won't be able to answer any more questions. But before I close, let me do, why did I, why did I decide I wanted to show you that? Sam, stand up for a second, if you would, please. And Martha, stand up for a second, OK? Obviously different. Uh, if I said, okay, I'm going to go through here and I'm going to pick somebody that I promise I can take back to Houston, Texas and train to be an astronaut, Sam's probably going to say I'll go because Sam is male and Sam's accustomed to saying I'll go. Martha could probably be an incredible astronaut and Martha's probably going to say, I don't know. I don't know. I want Martha to feel just like Sam. And I want both of them, thank you all very much, I want both of them to be able to say, I'll go. So for the young ladies, you know, don't be shy. Uh, don't let somebody tell you that you cannot do something. You define yourself. You decide what it is that you're going to do. Don't let anybody else tell you that you cannot do something. You define yourself. For the young men, same thing. When I was your age, some of your age, when I, I tell my, I have a daughter, I mean a, a granddaughter who's 13, and she's almost six feet tall. Uh, as her granddad, I'm still five, seven and shrinking. And, and I tell her, I said, you know, I would have loved to have been as tall as you when I was your age, when I was going into eighth grade. When I went into ninth grade, when I entered high school, I was four feet 10, and I weighed 84 pounds. And people told me I couldn't do stuff. I wanted to play football. I wanted to do all kinds of stuff. They said, you're too small. And I said, no, I'm not. And so for the, for the young men, if you're too small, somebody says, or you don't know enough or something else, don't let anybody define you. This is a young man by the name of Nkosi Johnson who, who died of AIDS, the dreaded disease AIDS. And I'm not going to tell you his whole story. Uh, but I want you to think about what Nkosi said here. 
when he was dying, an American writer by the name of Jim Wooten, who had gotten to know him, went and talked to him. And Nkosi was known in his village for always telling people, we need to do this, taking care of other people. He never asked about anything for himself. He lived a life of pain for 12 years before he died. But he never asked for anything for himself. He was always trying to help other people. And when Jim Wooten went to visit him on his deathbed, and Kosi was smiling, and he was telling people what to do, and Jim Wooten told him to stop, you know, because you're going to die. He said, and Kosi, you're going to die. And Kosi looked at him. He said, yep. And he said, but I don't understand it. You, you know, you're still worried about other people. You're not asking anything for yourself. You don't seem to be concerned about yourself. How can you do that? And he said, and Kosi looked up at him and smiled. He said, you do all you can with what you have in the time that you have in the place that you are. That's all I want you all to do. That's all your teachers want you to do. That's all the people in the museum here want you to do. That's why they allow you to come together. They want you to do all you can with what you have in the time that you have in the place that you are. Be great here in the UK. Be great whether you live in London or Leeds or wherever else it is because you can do that. So God bless all of you. Thank you very much for allowing me to spend some time with you. Thank you. Thank you.